AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for August 9th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined online by John Markley. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to have you here and uh, look forward to the quiz a little later, later on in the program. You always have some uh, nice, uh, thoughtful things to, uh, to, I guess, to stimulate our noggin, so to speak. <laughs> and here we have uh, Stan Nurlov. Welcome, Stan. Uh, thanks, Brian, for having me. Uh, glad to have you here. And uh, John Hogeboom, welcome. Now, John, you made it I, back safely from Las Vegas, Stan and I. <laughs> That's right. So you were at uh, Black Hat last week and we uh, DEF CON yeah. as well, is that right? Yep. And uh, so give me a little, little rundown. What did, what did you find really intriguing about it? Ollie, you go first. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I kind of enjoyed it. I got to meet a lot of interesting people. Yeah. Um, I went to a training session on car hacking, so I used cool. it more like as a hobby, uh, but I learned a great deal. Uh, some interesting talks of Black Hat, and I really enjoyed DEF CON uh, because we got to participate in, uh, in a, uh, Capture the Flag competition, right. John, me, and a few other guys on the team, and we had a lot of fun doing that. All right, great. And um, I hear you really had a good start. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, first day was pretty good, right. and then that's where we peaked. Yeah. We got stuck at the very last question. But, yeah. uh, so kind of the uh, kind of the hair and the tortoise kind of thing going on right yes <laughs> so well I'm glad you had a, a good experience with that anything yeah there were a lot of good uh, talks at black hat some better than others I was kind of paying more attention to some of the mm -hmm. uh, telephony ones because I've had kind of a focus in that lately yeah uh, so there's some really good discussions with that and um, a lot of them are available uh, already up on the black hat website where you right. can look at the presentations and some of the white yeah. papers so I'm going to be talking about couple of things here today from uh, from Black Ash, yeah. right? All right, very good. John, I noticed you're wearing your Murray pen. I do have my Murray pen. And, um, you know, we have an internal awareness campaign at AT&T of more, Murray is basically the spokesperson for that. He's running for office uh, as the uh, an office for security awareness. Right. And uh, his, um, his uh, campaign partner is Edna. And so, uh, you know, if you're, you're interested in learning more about uh, Murray and our internal awareness campaign, there's a uh, website you can go to. Uh, it's uh, talkster.att.com and uh, we'll show you the URL. You can go visit that. And I think it's a nice twist on making security awareness a little on the lighter side, right. more entertaining. More accessible and, to uh, people. Yeah. And more accessible for people. So, a uh, very cool thing. So, John, let's go to you first. And um, I guess. We all know that you have to pay attention to the security of your website, but who would have thought you have to pay attention to the security of other people's websites? Yeah, so that's the interesting angle here. So, um, you know, of course, like you said, you want to pay attention to your domains, make sure they don't expire and whatnot. But um, in a lot of these various content management systems like WordPress and Joomla, these other frameworks that you might run at, you know, on your website mm -hmm. to present your content, uh, in some of those cases, you'll install themes or plugins uh, from third-party developers. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those third-party developer plugins or themes um, will call out or have references to their domains to pull in some content that might be there or to update themselves or whatnot. So the, or to learn about what you're doing. 
Yeah, I guess right. to know that you're using their plugin and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so what happened here is they're, um, they actually walked through a pretty interesting uh, one of the one of these plugins called FlexiTalk uh, that had a, a a big problem with this. Mm -hmm. But what uh, these bad actors are doing, they're finding these domains for some of these older plugins, uh, maybe a year or two old, and the domain has expired. And then they go register that domain. The bad guy registers it. Mm -hmm. And then they basically, it's not really a hijacking so much as a, like, taking it over sort because... Of squatter. Yeah, yeah, squatting, right. They're squatting on these expired domains. And then um, any websites, like any of these WordPress websites or whatnot that are still using those themes and haven't updated themselves, um, visitors to those websites are going to indirectly get pushed mm -hmm. ads from this, you know, the ones that have been uh, uh, renewed by the bad guy. Mm -hmm. So they're really mostly using it for um, ad distribution and whatnot, um, but they could use it for other malicious purposes if right. they really want to, because sometimes they'll actually import JavaScript from these other mm -hmm. uh, things. So you could be, technically, you might be able to get some stuff running on the client browser indirectly mm -hmm. through these other websites. So it's something to be aware of if you have these. And I know a lot of people, we talk about this often, that sometimes you set up a website and you just, as long as it's running, it's fine, but you don't really pay attention to updating a lot of these extra components that you might be adding into your website from a third party, and uh, you really should. Yeah, uh, absolutely. something like this could happen. This kind of brings me back to our discussion maybe a few weeks ago where we were talking about keeping track of all the components that are a part of your build. Right, right. So that you can basically keep a tab on any patches that are involved in this, it's not just patches in this case, you need to kind of be paying attention to whether it's actually continuing to be maintained. Right. If that has gone away, then you need to make some adjustments. So this is a little bit of a, even more subtle than what we were talking about before. You know, is there a support site or something behind it that may have gone away? Uh, perhaps paying attention to the traffic on your, <laughs> I guess you wouldn't even see that. This is this yeah, is going to originate from possibly, the browser you might side. Not, right. Yeah. You might deliver some page, or your website might deliver a page to the client mm -hmm. browser that has tags in there that wants it to go fetch something from somewhere else yeah. or whatnot. So. so you might even have to do some uh, kind of some independent testing to verify things are working right from a browser perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And one, I wonder too, John, if the one of the concerns would be. If you had a frame on your normal website that had an ad service, you know that just swaps through different ads, you don't. You just you just know about the ad service, but they'll have to keep track of all these uh, expired domains as well. So you might you might be showing up one of these malicious sites and not really realize it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So. Okay. Well, I mean, and that's that's even trickier in the sense that what you're really looking for is not necessarily something that has stopped working. I mean, if you can catch that, but this is a case where it started working again, but under a different, right, assumed a different by a different way. organization yeah. or a different person or whatever. Right. Now, I guess by the same token though, when you're using one of these open source things and it's making connections out, you really don't, there's not really an integrity check associated with who that's connecting to, right? right. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to say. So you're, there's you're putting some faith into that uh, open source software or that tool or whatever that you're that, that you're using as well. Right. Uh, it's a pretty tricky tricky environment. All right. So, uh, John, let's go to you, John Markley, and um, I guess uh, this is this is around mobile apps. You're going to have to explain it to me a little here. <laughs> okay. So, so almost shoot. 
10, 15 years ago, I can remember giving a speech at, a, at a, one of the legacy companies about uh, malware that morphed, that actually changed form, you know, based upon, you know, time of day, whether you attacked it, you know, detected it, whatever. Of course, you know, we've seen all that efforts, you know, in today's world, you know, that as things have changed, that was, that's pretty commonplace. What we're now starting to see, at least in the mobile world, is, and it's somewhat hypothetical, but I really do think we're, we're going to see more and more of it, is that we have mobile app collusion where components may not be malicious in of themselves. So you may go out to a site and download, you know, an app, you know, off of even a normal, you know, quote unquote, good app store. And it's fine. Mm-hmm. But it may detect because of certain other uh, apps that you have already installed on the device, you know, or, or get later on, it may be able to detect because of inner app communication. It may say, okay, you have app one, and now you have app two, and oh, here comes app three getting installed. Now that all three of these apps are on the same device, it could take pieces of code from each of those apps and actually make a new piece of malware to reside on the device. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is not something I think that's you know altogether startling from a, from a PC or a server perspective necessarily, but from a mobile site, it, it's it's fairly new, uh, you know, concern. And, and you know, and it's not just the apps; it's the SDKs, it's the uh, libraries that go into it. You know, it's when when these app developers, you know, they take a lot of stuff, especially in the mobile world, as we get into more open source too, right? They take pieces from all these different places. And they start putting them all together into their app, and, and and some of the malicious actors are now recognizing that I get detected if I have it in one app, but mm-hmm. if I can break it apart in some fashion, I can I can maybe sneak it by all the antivirus, all the other checks that get done on the mm-hmm. device. Yeah, it's an interesting point, and I kind of wonder um, would this also apply to the permissions that you grant those apps as well? So uh, a- abs- abs- absolutely, that's yeah. one of the biggest things I think we see nowadays is you grant app XYZ, right? <laughs> Using terms here, you know, pretty generic, but you grant that app, you know, access to your camera. Mm-hmm. Well, because of the inter-app, you know, uh, collusion, and that's the term that gets used in a lot of the papers nowadays, you you're actually could be granting a third app or a secondary app access to that camera as well because of the way that the apps communicate between themselves. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, and, and you may grant another app that you install another set of permissions that seem logical for that app and then when the two get put together it becomes a combination that you didn't really anticipate right yeah so as you say the devices are pretty are pretty sharp in that you know you you can sometimes see this i mean it goes back to that you know be careful about installing from third-party app stores or granting permissions that you may not want mm-hmm. to do you know or you don't that don't make logical sense but it also is just, what is unloaded on my device? If all of a sudden you go through your app list, you know, and it may not even show on the main screens, it may be actually in the list, and you all of a sudden see a, an app you don't remember installing, that's a little tricky to, you know, and it may be something that you may, you know, throw up some red flags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess uh, my, my last little piece of advice on this would be um, just to keep in mind there is no free lunch. That is, if you download an app, if it's really cheap or if it's free, there's something they're gaining from that. That and so you you really have to you know look at the fine print and make a fundamental decision about is this really what I need? Is this really what I want? And uh, 
especially if you're not using apps. I know I have this experience. I'll download, you know, at, or you know, install an app or something with the intent of using it, or maybe I end up use it for a couple of days, and then decide, you know, this isn't this isn't really what I need, and um, you know, it's best to get rid of it rather than just let it accumulate on a, one of those uh, screen pages or something. So, mm -hmm. all right, very good, John, and uh, some good important advice as we go 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 forward here. And uh, so, Stan, let's go to you here. Okay. <laughs> and um, th th this is a really cool story, in my opinion. So I you're like going to have to try to pull the pieces apart for us here. Uh, yeah, I definitely <laughs> like this story. It's actually from a Black Hat talk I went to. And right. uh, information is also published online. Um, so this one needs to be unpacked a little bit, because mm -hmm. I think when you first explain it's it. It's a malware term. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, because when you first explain it, people are just like, oh, what, is the, what are you yeah. talking about, Stan? What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, um, this researcher, Alexei uh, Bulazal, uh, what he did is he discovered a way to, I guess, fingerprint um, AV vendors. So the idea is, you know, malware could try to detect AV or which AV it's running, and then try to evade detection uh, from the AV. So, want you know how do you? What are some approaches today to figure out what the malware is? Mm -hmm. So there's static analysis techniques and dynamic analysis techniques, and the dynamic stuff is more like a sandbox. You run it, you instrument the sandbox in such a way that you could see what are all the different uh, API calls. So what this guy wanted to do, Alexei, he wanted to figure out how like the AV works, how the emulation engines inside AVs work. But the problem is, how do you like instrument the AV itself? I guess you could like reverse engineer it or try to mm -hmm. figure out how it works, but that'd be too hard and too difficult. So he came up with this, what I thought was an ingenious, clever, very clever approach. Uh, it's basically created a covert channel of extracting information, like communicating from within the malware uh, out uh, through the AV. Uh, so the concept is, right, you know, mal uh, the AV cannot emulate every function or system call. It's going to behave differently from the way a normal system would do. And, and he found that actually, like, if you get a host name for a computer, you know, Kaspersky will return one value, but it's always going to be hard-coded. AVG might return another one. That's going to be very hard-coded. And that kind of creates a fingerprint. You know, if you see this computer name or, or a certain mutex, uh, you know that that's what it is. But how do you get that mutex or computer name out of the AV? How do you extract that out? So out of what, the emulator. Out of the emulator. Right. So because we know it doesn't make any network connections no. or anything. Right, right. it right. doesn't make any network connections. So how do you do that? So what the approach they came up with is uh, to basically, I guess, it's map out every letter of the alphabet, let's say, to a different malware family. And then, you know, let's say they make a call to get the computer name, and the computer name has certain letters in it. And for every letter that's in the, let's say, the computer name, they'll drop a different type of uh, malware <laughs> that the AV will then detect. Right. And then they will reconstruct the word based on the detections that occurred. So let's say you know they might drop Zeus uh, for the letter Z, um, the Alina Pass uh, malware for the letter A, and something like that. So then they can reconstruct that. And uh, when I saw this presentation, I, I was amazed. I mean, it's not instantaneous because you know you got to run it and you got to extract it a letter at a time. But he was able to do things like enumerate the file system 
that the antivirus presents to the malware. And there's some really sometimes funky names over there mm -hmm. uh, that they put in there. And it's funny because it's just a developer. Um, they think they're being clever. They put like a, a, a silly name in there or something like that. And now all of that's kind of exposed. Mm -hmm. uh, the analysis was great. The presentation was to me amazing. Um, encourage everybody to read the PDF. Really interesting research. But I, what I loved about it most was this covert channel he created, right. which I thought was right. so clever. It's a good thing there are so many types of malware available so that you'd have a variety of signatures yeah. to be able to trigger. I mean, yes. I, I mean, it's really kind of a dark, dark humor in that, but it's kind of an interesting uh, approach to uh, solving his problem. Yes. And but then a bad guy who's able to fingerprint all these things, they could essentially make their malware AV aware for mm -hmm. all these different vendors. And that mm -hmm. is one thing that Alexei did discover um, that you know some of these mutexes are already known by the bad guys. And so mm -hmm. if you search those longer mutexes on Google, you'll find there's certain sandboxes uh, behave differently. Uh, you know, and uh, there's malware actually looking for those mm -hmm. and things like that. So these are some of these are known already by the attackers. Uh, um, what I know is maybe I'll grab a few of those mutexes, put them on my computer, just for that added layer of protection <laughs> in case the malware wants so to... you're inoculating yourself by putting fake yeah. mutexes on your machine? I think so. It's kind of <laughs> inoculating myself, right? <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, very good. That's an interesting story, to say the least. And, um, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's important that uh, stories like this are made available, that is to be able to understand perhaps some of the techniques that some of the malicious actors are already perhaps using. Um, and, you know, they're, they're discovering these things somehow, so there yes. must be something like this going on. Yes. So very important for, for awareness. All right, very good. John Hogan, let's go back to you here for a moment. And um, this is, a, I guess this is, you know, a typical scenario that you want to try to avoid yourself, right? Yeah, well, I guess in my previous story, I was talking about when you're importing third-party stuff and your website gets compromised. Mm -hmm. uh, this was just a case of kind of a larger website called Fosshub. Um, they're, um, they're like an open source software or free software distribution mm -hmm. site. There's a couple of different ones. Softpedia, I think, is another one uh, that's similar to that, where you can go get, you know, download some of these various executables for, um, you know, public or uh, public domain software. Mm -hmm. So uh, a hacking crew by the name of Peggle Crew uh, was able to compromise their website. I guess they had a service open. They kind of described it a little bit, I guess, in their um, when they revealed it to the, mm -hmm. the owners of the website, that there was a network service that was open, didn't have authentication, and via that they were able to kind of get deeper into um, their cluster of servers. Uh, what they did initially was they just kind of replaced two, just, I guess, proof of concept. They changed out Audacity and a classic shell installer, and they uh, Trojanized it with a master boot record piece of malware that was embedded in there. So if you downloaded those from FossHub, you would get infected. Um, once people were onto them, I guess, or they were kind of discovered, they actually replaced it for all of the executables mm. up on the website. And then I guess the long story short of it is that this master boot record virus that they put on, or actually I don't know if it's so much of a virus as just malware, yeah. that um, it only changed the master boot record so when you rebooted your computer, it would bring up a message saying, and it was kind of like a goofy message about, um, you know, 
you should be careful where you download yeah. and install software. Just sort from. of a defacement, or yeah, yeah, be be glad that we didn't, you know, install something worse on your mm -hmm. machine. Um, still, so you have to repair know. your master boot record, right, to get <laughs> yeah. your machine back up again. That's right. Uh, which a lot of people probably, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would not know how to do that. Um, but uh, well, it can be tricky to do if you don't have something to restore from. Right. Right. <laughs> But you should be able to. So, yeah. so, so, so they're hacking your computer it. to teach you a lesson. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So still not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'd be better if they just notified the owner of the website, "Hey, you've got this issue. You mm -hmm. should clean it up." Not go through this process of trying to make a name for yourself. But in any event, just another example of be careful. Make sure you know we talk about on the show a lot. If make sure you understand what services are open. Mm -hmm. on your various uh, network devices that you have connected to the internet, especially the internet-facing ones. Because if they don't need to be open, you should close them. Even the ones that are open, they should be restricted to only the people who need to use it. So like a website, uh, you know, you could open that for everybody, but the SSH, RDP, things like that, you would want to restrict those so that the entire internet cannot connect to them because they don't have a need to. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that's how this one was done, but uh, some service was open there. They didn't say which one yeah. that they were able to leverage. So. And, and you know, the, the shame of it is you just provided some 25-year-old advice that's yes. just as applicable yeah, yeah. To today, perhaps even more applicable. It's, it's become more critical in the cloud environment where, you know, cloud services don't necessarily have a firewall in front of them to, by default, protect them. I mean, there are firewall services and things that you can put in front, but you have, to, you have to actually do something about that. Whereas I think in some cases, uh, you know, people might take for granted that the network has some kind of a firewall protecting them. So it's, uh, it takes a little bit of uh, extra effort to make sure that the system's locked down and that uh, unnecessary services aren't exposed to the internet, especially ones that have vulnerabilities associated with them. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I guess the other thing that kind of comes to mind associated with this story is the, the perhaps the value of a bug bounty program, that is if you can provide some incentive to report the bug as opposed to doing some sort of defacement or some crazy thing like this, have a contact that they can report these things right. that's, uh, that's as readily available as you can make it, it uh, may yeah, it may provide motivate you from having a, or, you know this folks kind of like this to do the right thing and uh, and make it so that you can correct it without having to rebuild your systems. Right, right. Yep. All right. Very good. So, John Markley, let's go to you and uh, let's take a whack at this security quiz. <laughs> okay. I, I, I swear the next uh, comic book convention or whatever I go to, I'm going to have to get myself a wizard hat. I just I'm going to have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if I can voucher that off. I will have, well, to, I'll have to check. With them we'll let you voucher a tin hat, but I don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So anyway, so here's here's a few here's a few questions. These are a little different than what I've done in the past. So um, so we're going to take a stab at a different uh, different thought here, and this is uh, more of an intent to generate some conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so so uh, the the first question here is about the past. So so the younger people in the audience may uh, may have some trouble with this one, but. Uh, uh, an early mechanism used for secure network transmission was A, Berkeley sockets, mm -hmm. uh, B, secure network programming, or SNP, C, Archie, or D, Gopher. Yeah. I've got a feeling this is going to be an easy one for John. I don't know if it is or not. I would say, like, 
So my answer, is, so first of all, I don't think Archie or Gopher had any type of encryption in them. Yeah, they're really, I recall. They're worse search tools, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, like Archie was like some kind of library like early, indexing yeah. thing or something, yeah. and Gopher, I think, it's was similar, similar to that. Yeah, it was basically. And then Berkeley Sockets is just a network connection thing. It's not necessarily yeah. encryption. So I don't know what secure network programming is, so I'm going to go with B, <laughs> because yeah. that's the only one I don't There's know. There's something about that name that suggests that perhaps yeah. it was used for <laughs> yeah, secure network <laughs> activities. So uh, I don't know. What do, you, do you have any uh, uh, rebuttals here, Stan? I actually am not familiar with many of these. <laughs> Gopher, I've heard about in a textbook. Yeah. Um. <laughs> See, we, I actually used Gopher yeah. probably in the 90s, or like yeah. late 80s, early 90s, but I don't even remember what it was like. And I think I heard about Berkeley sockets. That secure network programming just looks so official, like yeah, it could it really technically it be It has something. an acronym. It has an acronym. Yeah. It looks like it's either a trick uh, that John came up with here to trick us into picking that one, or it was something that was attempted. So I'm gonna, and now that John picked it, I'm gonna have to go with that go as well. Go with me as well. Okay, John Markley, give us the scoop here. Well, well f first off, you've all made me feel very, very old. Just say that up front. Because <laughs> I've used Archie and Gopher and Berkeley Sockets. Uh, I can't say that I've necessarily used SNMP. SNP. I've got to watch that, that yeah. acronym there. That, that is the right answer. SNP was actually a precursor to SSL, mm -hmm. and, it, and, it used, and it actually uses Berkeley sockets. Right. You so it's, it's, it's a direct connection. So yep. it's, it's, it's a somewhat of a trick question in that it, it is uh, a growth out of Berkeley sockets, but mm -hmm. uh, it is the protocol that pre, you know, preceded SSL. All right. Very good. All okay. Right, we're, we're batting a thousand. You're batting a thousand. So far. <laughs> I think I think you'll keep that that up. So let's let's give you the present. Uh, all modern phones use what type of encryption? Maybe a little tougher one. Uh, a DES, uh, B triple DES, uh, C AES, or D Blowfish. Okay. Now I'm guessing here you're not referring to the type of modern phones that have a dial on it. No. no. <laughs> So you're referring Talking to mobile. You're mobile, referring to mobile, mobile devices. Okay. Okay. Yes. Exactly. So Mo mobile phones. All right. I'm going to take a whack at this one if it's okay. Okay. You know, I think um, if I remember correctly, Blowfish was a um, actually an algorithm that was created by uh, Bruce Schneier. If I, yeah, it, I does that right. sound correct? Yeah. It, so he, that was considered a candidate. I think when they were when they were selecting between AES and there were perhaps some other candidates, right. but I think that was one of the candidates Again, at the a mid-90s invention, I would say, right? I think Blowfish um, was around was the mid to late 90s. I think it was, well, it may have been invented around those time, around that time, and um, I, I think the, the evaluation was perhaps in the late 90s, okay. early 2000 time frame. Um, I think it was after I'd moved to New Jersey 17 years ago, something like that. So that's, I just remember. Anyway, um, DES is quite old. Yes. Uh, Older three, than most of us, probably. Right. And <laughs> AES was designed to actually replace that because DES had its, its uh, that was the data encryption standard that was, uh, you know, sort of actually was the National Standards Bureau at the time when they had established that. And then 3DES was kind of a, you know, like, well, if you, if you do it once, maybe if you do it yeah, three times, three it'll be, times. It'll be <laughs> better. It'll be better. So, uh, and you know, it, it lengthens the key. But I'm going to have to go with the modern sta standard for encryption C. I'm going to agree with you. Um, 
I would agree with you. I'm only worried that somewhere in the bowels of the old code, the Des <laughs> lives on. <laughs> it does. It is still in use. There yeah. are there are uses for it, and it's a valid. I think even a valid choice in some of the uh, standard encryption solutions. But I think you know, based on sort of the recency of the current, you know, like LTE standard, 4G standard. I'm, I'm thinking they're gonna go with the most current. And plus, uh, I think the computational complexity or expense around 3DS, for example, is I think quite a bit more. One of the things that they were looking for was efficiency. And actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I think one of the benefits was Blowfish actually was perhaps more efficient computational-wise. That, that makes me doubt myself for just a little bit here because one of the really important things about having a good mobile device is to be very efficient with how you use the battery. But mm. I'm, I'm going to stick with AES here. All right. I'm going to lock that into them. Okay. John? Yeah. I'm going to stick right. with C. What do you say, John Barkley? Again, you guys made me feel old with the DES comment and older than most of us because that was the <laughs> 70s, and I remember the 70s. Yeah. 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 That was, <laughs> was the 70s. Absolutely. Yep. But uh, yeah, it is CAES. Uh, AES used to be a challenge in the mobile environment because there was a concern that the computation on the handsets couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. But mod I think, Brian, as you said, modern technology is such that it, it does handle it fine. So they, they quickly jumped from uh, DES, actually, all the way up to AES uh, real quick in the, uh, in the last few years. All right. Very good. So two for two. And I suspect three for three. <laughs> anyway, so let's go. Let's go to the future. So here's some future, and, and there's some, maybe some argumentative uh, statements that can be made that these future things are already here. But let's let's just kind of talk about it in terms of widespread. Okay. Uh, some future security measures may include a IPv6, uh, b DNSSEC, uh, c DMARC, and I can explain what DMARC is if anybody needs to know, or d all of the above. All right. Stan, I think you get the drive on this one you, you, by the process of elimination, but we'll, we'll help you along if you like. <laughs> well, I guess we can use IPv6 to secure against maybe some of the scanning attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, That's you know, a good point. You'll be hidden, you'll be hidden right, in the number of IPv6. Right, right. You'll You're be, just by the just massive built. search space that yeah, it's you can't be massive scanned. Massive address yes. search space that makes it much more difficult to do it. it, it, it an exhaustive scan of address right. space. You have to have you have to have something to focus in on, at yes. least for the the moment. Yes. Maybe 15 years from now, we'll be like, boy, that IVP, IPv6 space is small. <laughs> We're running out of space. Well, with all the IoT devices yeah. uh, that are planned, and maybe yeah. we will. Um, aren't there aren't there more addresses than there are like grains of sand, grains of atoms in the universe, or something like that? It's I, some crazy. I think we'll like find that. out. I think we'll find out. <laughs> once we've addressed every grain of sand, uh, uh, we'll find out. The DNSSEC has got SEC in the name, and it's uh, I think it's used for authenticating the domains and signing uh, the domains. So that could be a security measure. Mm -hmm. It could also create some other. Uh, Security yeah. issues. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Like uh, DNS amplification. Correct. Anyway. <laughs> and the DMARC, I'm actually not familiar with what DMARC is or what it provides, but because A and B is there, and they could both technically be used for security, I, I would say all of the above mm -hmm. uh, here. But I'm not, I don't know I would what like, DMARC is. I don't is. know what DMARC is either, so mm -hmm. I would actually like to know what that is, but yeah. I'm sure John will be able to tell us. 
Yeah, I'm not going to talk about it because I happened. I did cheat. I looked at. I looked that up prior because I did not know what what it was. So, that but that's the only place where I cheated on this. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> And nevertheless, I, I guess the one thing I would point out, Stan, is in IPv6, the um, uh, header authentication is required. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that prevents packets from being modified in transit. That's one of it's supposed to be one of the required features. And okay. then I think the uh, payload encryption aspect of it. So it's basically IPsec is embedded into IPv6 as a feature. Um, but I think the encryption portion of it is is optional. At least that, that's the way it is in theory. I don't know how much that's used in actual practice. Yeah, or how many? Say, I've never seen how many devices are actually encrypted. Yeah, just by well, IPv6. E even if you put the signature on there, the fact that doesn't mean it's being validated by the devices that are receiving the packets or transiting the packets. So that's one of the things that uh, you, you kind of have to pay attention to. But it is a feature that's fundamentally built into the IPv6 mm. specification, whereas IPsec was a tack on to IPv4. Um, DNSSEC, to your point, John, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it does have its trade-offs. I think one of the um, hazards in any security protocol is that is if everybody has to do it for it to work, it's probably not going to work because there will always be someone that is motivated not to participate in the security solution to basically thwart it for the rest of the, you know, the criminals aren't going to want to do that. They, right. they and there there are organizations, you know, higher order that aren't going to want to do that. So it's going to be a very difficult road to hoe to make that a security measure in the future more broadly, unless some kind of an internet police is created that basically says, okay, if you're not doing this, we're kicking you off the network. And there really isn't a mechanism to do that today. So. Um, and then I'll, I'll let uh, John talk a little bit about DMARC here and see if we got the answer right. So all of the above is your answer, right, Stan? All I think that was my answer. I think you're right. I agree. That's how I got through high school is just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> it's always D. If, you know, if you're ever in doubt, right, answer yeah. D. Yeah. So, so, so you guys got it right. Uh, IPv6, as, as Brian said, has a number of security uh, features. Some of those are optional that do enhance security, so it's, it does have it built into the spec. DNSSEC, again, it's a may include, right? That's how the statement was, <laughs> the question was asked. I, I think there's a lot of discussion still there. Uh, DMARC is kind of an interesting thing. If you're not familiar with it, it and I always have to look, that's why I'm looking over here, it's domain-based message authentication, reporting, and conformance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it, it, it doesn't, my brain's old. We've already established that in this quiz earlier on. I can't remember those all those acronyms <laughs> really well. Right. But essentially what it does is it, what it, it enables you to do is that when you're transferring email from one server to another, from one, you know, from one, I guess, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the, it does a check to make sure that that's an authorized sender and an authorized recipient. Mm -hmm. so, so you actually get a, an additional security so to reduce spam because you can't just blast email. If DMARC is enabled, you can't blast email to everybody in your address book. Mm -hmm. it, won't, it won't work because the servers have to accept it and have to know who you are and also have to be validating the, the recipient and the, and the sender. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's, 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 it's a really neat philosophy. It's been around actually for some time, mm -hmm. but uh, I think we're gonna, I personally think we're gonna start seeing more and more of that as we look into how can we defeat the, the, the spam, you know, the spammers of the world. Yeah, certainly. That, uh, well, and it's, it's beyond spam. Spam is an annoyance, but I, I think the, uh, the phishing campaigns 
most often those, uh, those fishing activities come from what purports itself to be somebody you'd expect to get a message from, but is actually an attacker. And right. that's one of the things that tends to mislead people into trusting the message. And it's a very important aspect of uh, perhaps of improving the notion around email security. I guess, uh, I mean, just the way you described this, I didn't go into a lot of uh, detail investigating this, but I think it suffers perhaps that same um, constraint. That is, you need to be in a position where you're willing to reject anybody that's not conforming to that. That's going to be a very difficult threshold to overcome. It's one of the fundamental challenges in implementing security on the internet is that if you, if you have to make a decision about whether you're going to accept that message or not accept that message because you know, whoever's sending it, it is not conformant, then uh, it's, it's very tough to get there. At least in, in this case, perhaps you have an option to say, you know, label the email not authenticated. Right. So maybe when or, you're reading it, you can see, hey, this that one did not you know, pass that extra level of validation right. or whatever. So, uh, I mean, there's a training aspect around that, just like there are for, you know, TLS or SSL protected right. websites. Same if you don't idea, see a yeah. green bar banner on the top, then uh, you should be paying close attention. So it, this one at least has some potential promise, in my opinion. Well, and then you also have things like secure BGP, you know, like where you can refuse an AES because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not passes. I mean, that's another one, like you said, Brian, is if you start denying somebody access to share you know, a network, you know, just the network itself and that you knowledge of that network existing. Mm -hmm. That's a big block you can put in place either as a pro or a con. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So I'm sure that we could have hours and hours of debate on each one of these. I thought that was a very good question, John, and I uh, appreciate you bringing the quiz to us. Always entertainment and entertaining and uh, um, stimulating, yeah, educational. So let's take a quick look at the internet weather report for the last week or so here. And uh, looking at activity from August 8th here, we have uh, lots of activity on port 23 TCP, surprise, surprise. And um, actually more than 50% of the probes are associated with port 23. Now, a couple of weeks ago, John, did, did you host last week? No, oh, you didn't. I was I was gone last. You week. You were gone last week. That's right. Yeah. So uh, was perhaps no it was many. Nevertheless, I, I I suspect that this was very similar to last week. You know, two weeks ago reported a really huge amount of activity, probing activity on port fifty three four thirteen. We're going to take a look, a closer look at that. It's still in here. It went down one step in terms of rank, but went down significantly in terms of the uh, the relative volume of activity. So uh, we're going to take a, like I said, take a little closer look at that. Followed by port 80 TCP, uh, that went up three spots. But I took a look at it. There isn't really any unusual activity there um, relative to what we'd expect to see. Followed by port 22 TCP, it seems to be pretty much always on the charts here, looking for um, you know basically exposed SSH. Uh, sites that uh, perhaps have weak passwords, followed by 53 UDP, and I'm going to skip one and go to 123 UDP. These are perhaps probing around looking for sites that could be used for amplification attacks. Oh, we just talked about that a little bit earlier. Perhaps uh, looking for sites that are serving up yeah, DNSSEC DNS <laughs> signed domains. And, uh, and then 443 TCP is in between there, followed by 3389 TCP remote desktop protocol. Uh, 1911 TCP, and I have a, a mental block, but that's basically researchers that are doing probing activity for... Niagara Tritium Fox. There we go, Niagara Tritium Fox, which is a uh, basically an industrial control right. uh, protocol. Like a lot of building and then, automation. 
and then 445 TCP with about uh, a little less than 25% of that covered in the other category. I, if I remember correctly, it was on the order of about 21,000 other ports that are included in that other, other category. category. So a very broad sweep of uh, ports that we've been that had been uh, getting probed there. That's higher than usual. Uh, in terms of the top 10 most sources doing the probing, oh my. Port 23 is really big here. It's got more than 75%, closer to 80% of the number of sources that are taking place. That's more than 979,000 unique sources through the course of the day yesterday uh, on August 8th. And then uh, followed by 445 TCP, standard stuff, 53413 UDP. Um, we see 80 TCP in there, 6881 is actually a P2P. Um, and then there's uh, 4028 TCP, and uh, it's eluding me at the moment that uh, what that is, but I think it's, uh, hmm. I don't know. For some reason, I want to say asterisk, but it's not asterisk. It's something mm, else. I, don't think I feel like it's it another P2P. Yeah, I was thinking thing. it is another P2P thing, so uh, I'll have to take that as a homework assignment to verify what that is. Nevertheless, let's take a closer look at port 23 TCP, and uh, on the top graph, the number of probes. On the bottom graph, the number of sources doing that probing, this is only 90 days of activity. So if you look at the bottom left side there, we you know, have gone really up uh, basically two orders of magnitude. Is that right? Or is it any order of magnitude in terms of the amount of activity that's taking place there in probing? It's so what's one order of magnitude increase um, conservatively. And then uh, almost one order of magnitude in terms of the number of sources that are taking place. Again, uh, this scale is a different one. We're looking at the bottom, and it's showing, let's yeah, see. Yeah, but you went from like 50,000 yeah, to 100,000 yeah. to 400,000 is yeah, the latest. Yeah, 400,000, actually 400 plus thousand. It's close to 500,000 sources per hour uh, in the activity in the uh, graph below, and it keeps climbing. So this is, uh, this is basically that IoT devices that expose port 23 to the Internet have default passwords. They're not well documented. People don't realize it. They don't think of these devices as computers, and uh, they consequently get compromised. Predominantly used in denial of service attacks. A lot of this is that uh, lizard, lizard squad, squad right? They have a stressor malware, malware yep. that has basically gone into the public domain and is used by uh, perhaps uh, a number of different organizations. But it looks like this is really just uh, a relatively large botnet under um, a handful of organizations' control here. In terms of scan probes and sources on port 53413 UDP, uh, you can see this has dropped off significantly. This was through the roof in terms of the amount of probing activity that's taking place. And it's very inexpensive computationally to be able to do this probing because they're just spraying packets out there. They're not waiting for any response. They don't have to do any TCP connection. And um, you know, perhaps uh, the device will get infected and actually uh, connect into the command control. But that's independent of this, uh, the addresses that are involved here. And in terms of the number of sources, that's gone down as well. So uh, I, I, there's a possibility some sort of activity was taken against this, or it, the other possibilities they were just successful enough with their recruiting that they are able to kind of lay low now and uh, use those devices for whatever nefarious purposes they had intended. And the SANS Internet Storm Center, just as an aside, they did a, a little write-up in their diary blog that they do as well about this activity and. Right. Some of the, I mean, we've talked about it before. What some of these packets look like, and what they're what they're telling the infected devices to go fetch and install on themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 
Thanks for bringing it up, John. And uh, yeah, the SANS Internet Storm Center is a good resource for looking at things like this. And uh, you know, certainly if you feel that we should be reporting on something that we haven't, you know, perhaps it's on the SANS Storm Center or you haven't found it there either, you know, let us know. We'll take a look and see if we can, uh, you know, help out with some uh, information about it. Next one here, scan probes on port 1720, that's H323, as well as uh, port 5060 TCP. Usually you expect this, this 5060 is associated with SIP. Yep. Typically SIP is UDP. Typically. Right? Yeah, but it doesn't uh, have to be. But it is valid on TCP as well, so there may be uh, you know applications that are using it that way. Uh, the significance here is that uh, you know just starting around the beginning of August here, um, and then continuing uh, you know as we speak, we've seen an increase in the amount of probing activity. There's always some probing activity on these ports. Uh, you know sometimes uh, fraudsters are you know probing around trying to find um, you know paths where they can do uh, you know perhaps compromise a uh, VoIP gateway and use that to uh, perform um, uh, you know, fraudulent call, right. calling call activity. Fraud. Um, in this particular case, and this is specifically on port 1720 TCP, uh, most of the probes, I think uh, the vast majority were associated with a single address in Lithuania. Um, Lithuania. Lithuania. <laughs> and so, <laughs> nevertheless, it, the, that same address was also seen scanning on SIP ports, 5060 UDP and a number of others around that. But uh, the majority of those probes are actually associated with another address, um, and so there's you know there's a combination of activities that are taking place here, um, and you know like I said, if you in particular the I guess the message behind this, if you have VoIP gateways associated with your business, be cognizant of what those are, and uh, also be cognizant of any scanning activity. You know, Stan Yud investigated SIP vicious activities right. in the past, but basically it's a password guessing right. kind of application that targets uh, SIP gateways. Uh, this this activity is out there. Uh, and then uh, last but not least here, looking at the daily reconnaissance index over the last year or so here, I reported on this a couple of weeks ago, but wanted to basically give an update. Uh, all of this scanning activity that's taken place has really caused, caused a ramp up over the last, uh, oh, we're going to say six months or so, uh, relatively speaking. Actually, t actually about three months or so uh, in terms of the ramping up that's uh, been taking place. And that's relative, this is all measured relative to the amount of activity that's on the network. So it's all been normalized um, and uh, still growing significantly, relatively speaking. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at atttreattrack at list.att.com. Um, again, you know, if there are things that uh, you've noticed that you think we should look into further, or if you have uh, topics that you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, we're happy to do that. Just uh, get in touch with us. You can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech channel. It's on YouTube as well as uh, as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thanks for the quiz. Thank you. Thank you, John Hogaboom. Yep. Go Murray. Go Murray. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Stan. Thank you, bro. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.